where we should be focused is on the energy intensive industries where there is no other solution or where the electrification doesn't work. Because there's no doubt that electrification is just a more efficient piece of energy, right? Hydrogen, the most abundant element on Earth, has been hailed for decades as a beacon of the coming clean energy revolution. So why has it still not arrived? And why is everyone all of a sudden talking about green hydrogen? My name is Nico Johnson, and I'm your host as we navigate the hype, the hope, the reality, and the fiction in this search for truth in green hydrogen. This five-part series presents unique perspectives on how each of us might play a role in the greening of the hydrogen economy, the massive opportunities, and potential pitfalls that come with it. Green Hydrogen is a production of Suncast Media, and Season 1 is brought to you by Intersect Power. In today's episode, we have Baraj Borkataria, who covers the large-cap integrated energy companies at Royal Bank of Canada, RBC Markets. His coverage includes a trillion and a half dollars in market cap, including ExxonMobil, Chevron, Royal Dutch Shell, BP, Total, Eni, Equinor, Repsol, you get the gist. Just about everyone who is in the super majors of the broader energy economy. Baraj has been at RBC Capital Markets since 2013 and was the highest ranked analyst outside of the United States. He's also RBC's Deputy Head of European Research and helps support the wider management team. Today we'll hear Baraj's perspective as an industry analyst on the green hydrogen economy. As we have set the stage here today in this part three of our podcast series, we are going to talk about where the market is evolving, in particular with regard to the large corporate entities who are themselves looking at the energy transition and their strategy and deciding how they will play a role. Things like carbon capture and storage and hydrogen are part of the energy transition and evolution. And our guest today, Baraj Orkataria, has been spending quite a lot of time looking at the majors and their approach to the energy transition. So Baraj, I'd like to jump right in here in the beginning and really understand a bit better about the way that you, as an analyst, one of the most recognized analysts covering the super majors and and most of the major corporates that are looking at energy transition, how you think about your day-to-day work. And in particular, what's the most challenging part of your job as we close out 21 and head into 2022? Yeah, I think, you know, we spend a lot of time now looking at energy transition implications, specifically for the majors, but also that's permeating now across multiple sectors, as it should. If I go back five years, you know, the whole climate discussion maybe come, came up towards the end of meetings as a, as a throwaway question. Now it's really front and center. And we can talk about, you know, what's, what's driving that. But essentially, when you think about getting to net zero, some of these things, hydrogen, carbon capture, biofuels, they are critical. And from an investment perspective, there is a lot of opportunity there if you get the timing right. So that's kind of why we're spending a lot of time on it for the major. It makes a lot of sense. And you are closer to, to this discussion in many ways than most of us, which is why we're thrilled to have you help us unpack some of the conversation. Well, we won't have the time to dig into other areas of the energy transition. We're going to focus today specifically around the topic of hydrogen. For those who have looked at the arc of history for hydrogen, perhaps some would be surprised to know that it's many decades now in the making. My simple question is why 
has it taken so long for the hydrogen market to develop? You know, so something that was widely discussed more than two decades ago. So what's been holding back this hydrogen market? There's a number of reasons. And as, as you said, hydrogen is used today uh, predominantly for refining or in petrochemicals or to make fertilizer. So it's, it's a critical commodity uh, that people need to live. What's changed now versus, let's say, 10 years ago, there's a few things. Firstly, you know, you think about government legislation or the push for net zero. If you want to reduce your emissions, maybe hydrogen doesn't need to grow as much. If you want to get to net zero, it is critical for certain sectors. This has been coupled with greater pressure from investors, and it's seen as one of the solutions for carbon intensive uh, and energy intensive industries. Also, the debates we're having now around scope one, scope two, scope three emissions. So when you think about scope three, it becomes a question of how do I reduce the absolute emissions number? Uh, And hydrogen is, again, one of the solutions that can be um, part of that. But really the final thing, and probably the most important thing, is, is industries are now moving together. It was a bit of chicken and egg go back a couple of decades ago where actually was a lot of it was focused on the auto industry. And you had the big old company, you know, starting to build hydrogen infrastructure, but the auto companies didn't kind of follow through. Mm-hmm. And so that faltered. And now what you see more than ever is, is a lot of um, what we call clusters, which is, you know, groups of companies looking for solutions rather than competition. It, it's, it's kind of moving, moving the whole ecosystem together. That's really been a, a big change recently. I learned a lot for those who want extra credit. Your team did a wonderful webinar uh, recently on the hydrogen uh, economy and the evolution therein. Some excellent speakers will refer to perhaps as touch points here in the discussion. To your point, as I think back to the hydrogen economy, I'm reminded of the famous image of Governor Arnold Schwarzenegger, then governor of California, and his Hummer uh, and the duck. proclamation declaration that there would be a hydrogen vehicle economy. Many look upon those early touchstones as the the necessary myths that need to be debunked about uh, the hydrogen industry that perhaps it was originally sort of heralded as this as a clean vehicle uh, option. With that in mind, I'd like to hear from your perspective, are there myths that you feel have been already adequately addressed or debunked with regard to hydrogen's useful applications, where do you see hype versus reality? There's certainly a lot of hype. You know, in these kind of uh, topics, there's, there's really a barbell of views out there. On the one hand, it's, you know, hydrogen is going to go everywhere. going to be in your home, in your car, you know, in your fridge, whatever. And on the other hand, it's, it's hydrogen goes nowhere. Um, and the, uh, yeah, the world is not black and white. And the answer is very rarely that simple. So I think, you know, the key thing for us when I look at it the, the space is hydrogen already has a market, you know, 120 billion tons per annum, predominantly refining fertilizer. But what I think gets conflated a little bit is trying to find new markets without addressing the, the market as it is today. So where we should be focused is on the energy intensive industries where there is no other solution or where the electrification doesn't work, because there's no doubt that electrification is just a more efficient Piece of energy, right? I think I don't think anyone would debate that. But areas like steel, cement, petrochemicals, maybe there isn't electrification isn't an option, and you need energy dense fuels, and therefore hydrogen is the answer. But things like uh, a light duty vehicle, electrification is the obvious answer to me. And I feel like over time the answer becomes even more obvious. The key message I would give you is there is already a hydrogen market out there, predominantly gray or, or you know, gray or brown hydrogen. 
And that needs to be addressed first before you start looking at the UN market. Well, it's exactly that where we are looking in the energy transition at the nexus of how hydrogen, a commonly used and most common element in, uh, in our planet, can be coupled with the veritable boom that we've seen in the last two decades of renewable energy. I heard Michael Stefan of Nell recently say that the eventual business case for hydrogen is the most desirable dream of any oil company that strives to have 90% of the variable costs of an oil production fixed for the next 30 years, while the fuel price is only increasing over that period. In reality, it is possible with hydrogen when connected with renewable energy sources such as wind and solar. I don't want to put you in a box in, re in regards to answering the specific use cases of hydrogen, but I would love to hear, do you agree with Michael's assertion around hydrogen as a, as a fair coupling with renewables? And, and what other real use cases are we going to see in the coming decade? So, so I won't comment specifically on, on, on his views. So we can, we can isolate. I mentioned the, the heavy industry part, and that feels, that's quite obvious that it will be a use there. But transportation, you know, we're really talking about heavy trucking. I think there's a question mark on shipping. Historically, if you go back pre-IMO 2020, which was around the shipping regulations, you know, there was reasonable uh, emissions regulations around ports. But once you're at sea, you know, you know, it was almost like the wild, wild west out there. And mm. I think slowly we're getting to a point where there's more stringent regulation, but it feels like from a regulatory standpoint, shipping is probably further behind than, than passenger cars and heavy trucking. So I feel like heavy trucking is the way to go. I think the, the other use cases that, that comes up is probably storage. It's going to depend on country by country. So if you look at uh, Spain, for example, 80% of the hydrogen demand is for refining. You know, some industrial uses, but most of it's refining. The problem with using hydrogen as a storage form is, I think it sounds good in, in theory, but the more steps you have in that process, the process is never going to be 100% efficient. So if you're creating hydrogen at 60% efficiency, then cooling it down to a liquid, then regasifying it, all of those steps, you're losing you know, more and more energy throughout that process. And that's what makes it quite expensive. So I suspect, I mean, I don't know the answer to this, but if we go forward in a decade, I imagine that you know, the battery solution will be, will be there. And I don't know whether where hydrogen will be, will be cost competitive, but who knows? I mean, there's, things are changing so quickly. It's, it's very difficult to, to make very firm, firm predictions about uh, this space. Another encouraging element that you did mention previously was the utilization in areas where uh, we otherwise are going to be using coal or similar fossil fuels like, like steel making. And this is where we really can get into this conver conversation around the relative color of hydrogen, right? Lots of folks are familiar now with the term green hydrogen, uh, blue, pink, does the color of hydrogen really matter? And by, by really, I, I want to ask within the context of your core body of work, how do the major energy companies think about uh, the transition away from these fossil fuels and the relative color of hydrogen moving forward? So the color does matter because if we're doing this from a, from a sort of climate or emission standpoint, then at the end point, hydrogen effectively releases no emissions. So it's about yeah. what you put in. And so we, you, know, you go through the colors, dirtiest is black, you know, use coal with no carbon capture. Then you have gray, which is using gas without carbon capture. Blue and green are probably where the, the most emphasis is. So blue hydrogen is, is using gas as the as forming block, but with carbon capture associated. So you capture all those or as many emissions as you can. And then green hydrogen is effectively using renewable 
power to generate hydrogen. So you can see from the you know the the green hydrogen standpoint, you've got renewable energy in effectively very little or no emissions and no emissions out, and that that's the ideal outcome. Of course, as I mentioned, the process is not 100% efficient, but that's where you want to go. Now, 75% of you know green hydrogen costs are related to the the energy that goes in, and the reason again going back to the first question, why now hydrogen? Why is it gaining so much prominence? Is because renewable energy costs are deflated quite quite mm-hmm. substantially. So the wind costs have come down over the last 15, 20 years, amazingly. And so that has helped the economics. What's interesting now, particularly this year, is, is you know, we all, if, if I was to take the debate a year ago, it would be green hydrogen costs are going to go down, but they're not going to be competitive with blue. Therefore, blue is going to grow. That was based on the gas price of 5 or $6. And now the gas price right. is $30. So the relative economics can change either way, right? Green hydrogen can come down, blue hydrogen maybe goes up, maybe goes down, who knows? And that's somewhat changed recently. Who knows what's going to happen uh, in the coming years? In terms of the way the majors are looking at it, I think they will be present throughout the value chain. Um, not necessarily manufacturing the electrolyzers, you know, that end. Um, there's, there's other companies that can do that. But effectively, what they have are two things. They have hydrogen sinks, which is, they are big users of hydrogen. They own refineries, they own chemical plants, and they have end customers. And one of the things that's become very evident over the last 18 months is more and more companies have committed to net zero across the world. But the answer of how to get from A to B is not very clear. And actually, if you're a, if you're a big company like Shell or Total, you know your customers are demanding low carbon solutions, and it's your job to figure out how to, how to get there. So they'll they'll be present on the sink point. I think it's, it's quite important to note is you know a big oil company can effectively build out hydrogen capacity now, use it for its own refining operations. As the rest of the auto industry builds up, and then there's more demand for hydrogen, then you can send the hydrogen the other way. You kind of solve the the chicken and egg problem with, with supply and demand. It begs the question, and I know this is one that's on the mind of many a listener now, if the big oil majors are in fact going to, uh, and we'll call it big energy majors, if they are in fact, have, if they have the capacity on both supply and demand side to fulfill the, the dream of hydrogen uh, within their own infrastructure, where do the rest of us play? You mentioned a bit about the technology development, electrolysis. Mm-hmm. I'm curious, can the super majors and, and the big energy suppliers kind of go it alone? Or is there still room for those who want to participate in the hydrogen economy? Where do they play a role? I think there's plenty of room, particularly for innovative companies to find new solutions, whether it's the different types of electrolyzer or you know, different solutions or different integration techniques. Firstly, if, if you want this, this dream of, of green hydrogen everywhere, you are going to need so much renewable capacity to be built to create that excess hydrogen. To excess capacity to, to make hydrogen because ultimately you know what you should be doing with every single bit of renewable generation today should be going to the grid to decarbonize the grid then you work on the next bit which is what else do i do with it so i think that there's room to play i think i'm surely some of these uh, successful companies will get taken out by the big oil companies over time and, and they do have investment platforms where they they make small minority investments mm-hmm. in startups and they they see what works see what doesn't some of them will become what they call unicorns. Some of them don't do so well. But I think there's, going back to my initial answer was, you're seeing a lot more of, of companies moving together. So, so you almost, initially, when you're trying to build up an ecosystem, you almost remove the competitive element. And you say, actually, if I get the electrolyzer manufacturer, the oil company, and the auto manufacturer in a room, what is the solution here? And that's what you're seeing 
scale with the carbon capture uh, side, you have these clusters of industrial companies, and they're working together to find the lowest cost solution, uh, and then take taking that to the government and saying, hey, this is what we want to do. You know, maybe you can part fund it. Maybe we'll put some capital down. I think what you can't expect, particularly as an investor, is companies to just put tens of billions of dollars in the ground, building capacity, and then hoping there's an industry there. Because yeah. you know the same shareholders who want that will be saying, actually, maybe you shouldn't have done that 10 years later. And that alludes back to the discussion we had about the past two decades, is where, where's the market, where's the pull that will benefit from the infrastructure once built? But it begs the question as well, you mentioned the scale of the innovation investment, the VC arm uh, strategic investing that Shell and Lightsource, uh, as an example from BP, uh, are seeing in the marketplace, particularly around creating that generation capacity and, and uh, opportunity. So I have two questions around that. Perhaps you can roll them into the same answer. What is expected to be that scale of uh, the innovation investment that you expect to see from the majors? Uh, I'll give a couple of touch points for listeners who are familiar. We did an interview with Silicon Ranch, received a roughly $300 million investment from Shell. A similar um, sort of now sister company in the UK received a similar amount from Shell in practically the same year. It feels like that 100 to 500 million range is a platform level investment where we would expect to see platform companies see, see those kinds of investments or, or acquisitions. I'm curious, north and south of that, what you expect to see from an innovation investment perspective and what kinds of innovation do you see them investing in? So it's really all over the place. I mean, if you look at below, let's say below 100 million, and that is probably happening all the time, but they wouldn't even yeah. bother telling you about it. You know, because he's a you know, Shell does 50, 50 billion cash flow a year. So, you know, what is 25 million, 50 million to them? It's, it's not a lot of money, although it is to you know, the real world. So, it is really looking at kind of risk diversification because what you don't want as things are moving very quickly is to almost miss a theme because you mm -hmm. weren't willing to spend that two, 300 million on, on a chance that this might be worth two or three billion in 10 years' time. And I remember. Uh, Total bought a battery company uh, five, six years ago, you know, for a, for a billion dollars or billion euros, I think, at the time. And everyone was looking around thinking, what, what are they doing? Like, this is an oil company. And, you know, that today might be worth, based on comps, it might be worth $5 billion six years later. So, who, you know, these things can move very quickly. You do have certain sort of bubbly characteristics in the investment space, and that's where you need to be careful because bubbles do pop. So that that's where they need to, to watch out. But it's essentially, it's risk diversification. I think when you look across the things they're doing, carbon capture and storage is, is really in the wheelhouse. You don't necessarily need to acquire. And that ties into blue hydrogen. So you're not maybe not going to make the electrolyzer, but you do have the kit with your refinery where you can integrate it all and you have the carbon capture on site, maybe. You can, you can put most of those things together. And that's kind of what you see with, uh, on the, in the solar space too, right? There's no mm. reason for a shell uh, to, to be building solar panels. It's an yeah. intensely competitive space. And you probably have you know, small, nimble companies that can do things with lower overhead and get you there. But what these guys are good at is integrating. And, and that's what you have with big, complex engineering projects. It's, it's integrating that electrolyzer with your refining footprint with carbon capture and then your distribution network as well. Don't forget that because uh, mm -hmm. you know, they have millions of customers a day and B2B customers too. So it's, it's about putting all the pieces of the puzzle together. One final point on the investment arena that I've, I'm curious about and I'm, I'd love to hear your thoughts on it. I've heard, uh, I don't know if it's 
uh, rumor or if it's been publicly disclosed, uh, I've heard through the grapevine that companies like Baker Hughes are setting aside, you know, roughly 300 million for their decarbonization innovation fund. Is this the new normal that we expect to see from traditional fossil fuel players? And is it enough? Do you think 300 million for a company like Baker Hughes is just a drop in the bucket or is it a significant take? Is it enough is the, is, the, is the question I come across most often. When you look at the majors, they're spending maybe 10 or 15% of their capex in low carbon spaces across a very variety of themes, and then 85% of their core business. And going back to your question, of, is it enough? Some people will say, actually, maybe that's just greenwashing because you're still spending 85% of your, your capex in your core business. But you can't really compare the two. One is requires a lot of capex to keep it running, and the other one does, doesn't necessarily need that much capex to keep it running. So they're not necessarily apples to apples. Secondly, you know, I think you'd be pretending to think that all of the solutions of the world on the way to net zero are going to be solved by startups. You're going to need all the engineering, engineering capabilities that you can get. And these big companies are basically like giant engineering companies, right? In order for them to survive, the capex and the cash flow from the core business effectively pays for the one, the $300 million and then the billion dollars and then the $5 billion at some point. So you need to basically stay alive with what keeps you alive and sustain that as you're transitioning over. And that's one of the things I think when you speak to investors, it, it honestly often gets missed. It's, it's, the whole, it's in the definition, right? Energy transition is not mm-hmm. going to happen overnight. It's going to be a transition over time. And that's going to take many, many years. And that this is just part of the process. Well, Paraj, you have spent the bulk of your career focused on, I would say primarily the market across the pond. We're based here in the United States. A lot of our uh, listenership is here in the Americas. Could you give us a view from what seems like the captain's chair for the hydrogen economy? Europe has long been a leader in developing the infrastructure and the initiatives. What exactly do you see right now happening in Europe as EU clearly leads the way? And what can we learn across the pond here that could be applied to our market as it grows? So from a, from a regulatory standpoint and that, policy standpoint, Europe has been the most aggressive. So you, recently you had the EU uh, Fit for 55 plan, uh, effectively uh, the, intent, or the intention to legislate that uh, Europe needs to reduce emissions by 55% relative to the uh, 1990 levels. Um, so it's a, it's a very aggressive plan that has now been spread out across more and more sectors. You also have carbon pricing in Europe, which you have, you have different mechanisms in the US, uh, the 45Q and the LCFS, things like that, but it, it's not... Uh, as broad, I would say, uh, as it is in Europe. However, this, you know, the, the lessons are: if you want to kickstart a new ecosystem, you do need government support. That, that, you know, you can't expect companies to to go alone. However, there's many, many unintended consequences of that. So, without going off into too much of a tangent, there's something in Europe what they're trying to propose, which is called a, a carbon border adjustment mechanism or, or CBAM. And so, if you think about effectively, if I'm a manufacturer in Europe. Uh, making steel, for example, and I want to export my product to India, you know, I'm paying these carbon taxes, but actually some uh, manufacturer in China doesn't. Now, if, a, if I'm you know, selling that product domestically, maybe I'm a disadvantage relative to someone wanting to import steel in. And so that border adjustment mechanism is supposed to sort of levelize the competition, but it's very difficult to get right. And I think the problem we have is a global carbon price that's equalized across countries, it seems extremely unlikely. I can't understate how, that, how unlikely that is, given mm-hmm. politics in different regions, energy security, etc. Uh, and so you have these unintended consequences, right, where 
if I'm a European steel company, maybe I just say, actually, I'm just going to move. I'm just going to move all my operations to somewhere where the regulations are less stringent. Now, from an accounting perspective, you know, Europe maybe looks like it's reduced emissions, but from a global perspective, it doesn't really make that much difference, right? right. So this energy transition is fraught with unintended consequences. And so I guess, you know, the, one of the key messages would be, you know, expect volatility in, in so many ways. Things are not going to be smooth on the way to, on the way to net zero. To your point, we don't need to get uh, too deep into regulatory and policy issues here. Uh, many are potentially only tangentially or completely unfamiliar with the carbon border adjustment mechanism. It seems to me, and I want to make sure that I'm clear on the way this component uh, works and how it can have a sort of a double edge, is it could potentially incentivize folks to either move to other places or to favor export because they're going to get some sort of uh, reduction in tax to be competitive. Is that is that proper? The, the CBAM allows them to not have to pay the 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 the, the carbon tax uh, as to a stringent or deep of a level as a, they would if they sold that product in the European Union. No, so I guess it's um, if if you just price and you don't have the adjustment mechanism, you as an exporter, you probably you'll pay the carbon tax, so you pay incremental tax, but your peer who's based outside of Europe won't pay it, uh, and and similarly right. if they're sending their products into your country, they maybe don't pay it, but you still pay it. So you're at a competitive disadvantage. So the risk is, mm. the key risk is you have offshoring. So you just have right. corporates moving around uh, to wherever the least stringent regulation. Yeah, I understand now. So it, it in some ways will be similar to corporate tax. <laughs> and we'll yeah. have uh, carbon havens the way that we have tax havens in the world now. <laughs> yeah, although to I'm be not wary. sure you're going to have uh, steel plants in the Bahamas and Islands, I'm not sure about that. Well, Baraj, as we look forward to a future that includes hydrogen as a significant portion of our clean energy transition, I'd like to return to this notion of the emissions scope, one, two, and three. There is much debate, and I'd love to hear your perspective. Are there different views around accountability with regard to scopes one, two, and three? There are, um, and, and just a very brief segregation between them. If you're an oil company to produce the oil and gas, it, it would be your scope one and two. And then the scope three would be the part where you turn your engine on as a consumer and that you're combusting the fuel. In Europe, there's been a very heavy emphasis on, on scope one plus two plus three, almost to the point where the ownership has been pushed on the, the oil company. Uh, and I think you know, we've taken a view here that effectively polluter pays. So there should be a segregation there. And the challenge with targets based on scope one, scope two, scope three, the company you buy your fuel from doesn't determine how you drive, for example. So if you, you know, want to drive from LA to San Francisco in a Hummer by yourself, that has a very different carbon footprint than if you were in a Mini with four other friends. And I think that's not something that they can control. Uh, however, it obviously is important because scope three accounts for 80% of the, the life cycle emission, uh, typically. Regardless of, of the definitions of these things, this is a problem to be solved. The challenge is when you have really, really stringent top-down targets is any target can be gamed. So the quickest way, for example, to shrink three emissions as an oil and gas company is to shrink your production. Mm -hmm. Now, like going back to my unintended consequences point, if you, are, if you have a lower carbon intensity than the industry average and you shrink your production, who fills that gap if demand is unchanged? If it gets filled by an average producer, then actually it's net negative for global emissions as in net positive, net negative for the world. So I think that's a, 
one of the unintended consequences. The other way you can address it, and we look at net carbon intensity, that's our kind of key metric as we're looking at transition. Effectively, it shows how your business is transitioning over time. And the way that metric works is essentially, if you were to sell more low carbon products, your net carbon intensity would go down. Mm. And I think that's the appropriate way of measuring it. So we can look at CapEx and we can look at how many gigawatts you have. I don't think that's that relevant. It's about your net carbon footprint and how that's evolving over time because, as I said, it is a transition. So to the extent that you sell more hydrogen and sell less oil, you know, the net carbon intensity should move lower uh, and that should be important. But nevertheless, I mean, the, the, the scope three, it's relevant but also not relevant because ultimately the consumer is going to pay if there's a cost. These things tend to get passed on to the consumer. I'm really glad that you touched on the, those elements of scope in particular, the net carbon intensity, as I think about what are the appropriate metrics, how, how do we really frame the problem, not just for those participating in the economy, but those who want to understand it better, consumers who have to make decisions at the end of the day that will affect our, our scope three uh, emissions. In the aforementioned RBC capital markets, um, hydrogen conversation uh, one of the representatives from Equinor had uh, a position on this uh, more carbon efficient operations. And I, I admit that not being from uh, that sector, I was a little bit in the dark. I feel like you helped clarify for me why now I understand not only hydrogen has a big opportunity, but why companies like Equinor, one of the companies that you all cover, is focused on how hydrogen and carbon capture and storage can help uh, further reduce their their upstream carbon intensity. Thank you. That's, that's really insightful. Well, Baraj, I have a few questions as we round up the discussion here today, and they're focused on the hydrogen economy, its obstacles and opportunities. Uh, first, we'll look at the obstacles. What do you see in the coming years uh, as the key obstacles to either the success or failure of the hydrogen economy? So I think the, the most obvious one would be continued government support um, in order to kickstart the economy and the, and the process. I also think it's about track record. Um, so the initial projects that are coming online, the new electrolyzers being built, and the new carbon capture facilities, they obviously need to be able to work as efficiently as promised. Uh, and I, too often is the case where you have big complex engineering projects that are late, cost overruns, you know, go offline and things like that. So I think that would be the, the, the negative side. On the opportunity side, it's really about finding, you know, what end market should we be focused on? Where is the low-hanging fruit? And it seems like, to me at least, it's refining petrochemicals, steel, and fertilizer. So I don't know why we're having debates about whether hydrogen should be in light-duty vehicles, because we already have a solution for that, and it works quite well. But, you know, it's almost sometimes you think these are, these are distracting you from the actual path that we should be taking. So I think it's, it's about finding the end markets and finding the low-hanging fruit. And then really go after those. I love it. Don't get distracted by the non-viable end markets. Before I ask my final question, I'd love to hear from someone whose day-to-day job is to research and analyze this market. What authors, newsletters, podcasts, journals help keep you informed and up-to-date on this subject? Where can I look to get more up-to-speed on this topic? Yeah, the one I listen to most regularly is a podcast called Redefining Energy. And it's actually very thought-provoking and and they run through various topics uh, every few weeks and have some interesting speakers. The other one is actually just uh, 
you know, where we get a lot of our speakers is from LinkedIn. People are, you know, passionate about the subject. They like to post about it. When you ask questions, they answer them, take you seriously. And then you say, hey, can you join, you know, RBC's energy transition series? We'll talk about it here and give you the platform. Uh, if it's That's something hilarious. interesting and worth talking about, we, we will highlight it. And we have a, you know, fairly large platform, we'd like to think. Um, <laughs> so we're, 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 uh, we're happy to do that for, for in, interesting and important topics because mm. a lot of this is, is educational. A lot of it is the land of the blind and we're just trying to figure out what's what. And so for us doing the energy transition series internally, it, it was for us to figure out actually what is interesting here. What is mm -hmm. smoke and mirrors? What is real? You know, who's taking this seriously? What are the investment opportunities? And over many, many episodes, you slowly start to figure out. I said we haven't figured it all out, but uh, we're far from it. But you slowly start to realize where your efforts uh, should be focused as a, as a research analyst. Okay, Baraj, the final question is apropos for the work that you do and the position you hold in the marketplace. I would certainly be remiss if I didn't ask, what constitutes a good investment in this space? What are the characteristics that you're looking for in particular around hydrogen investment? Yeah, it's a, it's a good question and it's not easy one to answer. And I would actually, I'll just compare and contrast with what I'm looking at now, which is, you know, oil and gas is effectively a mature industry. So it has very different investment characteristics versus emerging industries. You know, we care less about growth because the market's not necessarily growing very quickly. So um, we're ca we care more about return on capital and things like that. With the hydrogen space, it's growth focused. It's looking at the pipeline of opportunities. You know, for the electrolyzers, for example, it's looking at the the upcoming potential wins they could have. You know, how do they grow their pipeline from a megawatt to a gigawatt to 10 gigawatts here, for example? Is that realistic? And as you start to risk it, you know, what is included in the price today versus what you think is, you know, it's worth in 10 years' time? And so that's a lot. The mindset is really about when you look at some of these stocks in, the, in a hyper growth focused areas is not about what's this company doing today. It's about, okay, what does this company look like in 10 years' time? Are they going bust or are they going to be the next big thing? And then, you know, it's not easy on the surface to determine which one it is. But um, that, that, I guess, is, that is the challenge of the job. Well, Baraj Borkataria, we will be following your analysis and uh, your insights as you continue to dig into this energy transition. Thank you for taking the time to join us from RBC Capital Markets. Really appreciate your insight. Uh, where could folks find you? Where do you like to be found if someone wants to reach out and say thank you? So uh, I'm reasonably active on LinkedIn, more of a commenter than a poster. Um, but, um, you know, I like to, I like to put our views out there. That's my man. I don't really have any other session. Fantastic. Well, we'll tag you on this post and many of our listeners are very active on LinkedIn. I'm sure they'll find you and thank you and then comment on your posts. Baraj, thank you for joining us here on this episode of the Hydrogen Economy on Suncast. Thanks for having me. All right. Well, just like the time before, I am joined by my friend Sheldon Kimber from Intersect Power, and we're going to do a little breakdown on the conversation you've just heard with Baraj Borkataria. I always want to get an insider's view on what does this actually mean if we break it down for those of us in the renewable energy side of the business. Sheldon, welcome back. Thanks again for bringing me in. Appreciate the opportunity to continue the dialogue. So Sheldon, one of the things that we heard Barrage talk a lot about is this concept of 
I want to call it rationing, but it's really thinking about the highest and best use of hydrogen among the many themes that we may explore here. I think this one is one where there is a consistent thread around this idea of hard to abate industries and the need to decide how and where we use hydrogen first. I'd love to hear your, your thoughts on that, having just listened to it. Yeah, I think the comment was made something about moving you know, moving hydrogen overseas and, and exporting from, you know, the Australia and the, you know, markets like Australia or Chile to markets like Japan that have a need for, uh, that, that currently import a lot of, say, natural gas, for instance, and how potentially that was not necessarily the best use. I guess my comment would just be that in all my experience as a developer, I think the most powerful force we have going for us to battle climate change is entrepreneurial innovation, capital markets, and the the drive that creative business people have to scale technology and scale businesses. And so I, I'm not, I am not one of those almighty dollar praise capitalism type people, but whenever someone starts talking about like preordaining what the highest and best use of some, some, something is, it, it always strikes me as a little bit not all that constructive, if nothing else, right? I mean, the reason I don't spend most of my time thinking about what the highest and best use of something is, is because there's really no organized way to put it there, right? So why waste our time thinking about it? Why not just focus on the ways in which we can scale it most rapidly and make it most abundant so that it can be everywhere? Yeah. And, you know, the the prevailing thought around collecting electrons in low-cost environments like Chile or Australia, and then transporting them to island markets like Japan. It has a lot of legs. You know, we'll hear commentary later on in the series around the complexities there and potentially high cost. What what I hear you saying is it really doesn't matter. And this is actually echoing something you said in your episode in the beginning. So long as there's a customer who's willing to buy it because their alternative cost is something different that either they can't afford or this is a better option or they've decided no longer meets their objectives, be it uh, because they were formerly buying black hydrogen and they want to buy green hydrogen, so they're incentivized to do it, or some other lever, let the market decide through demand creation. Yeah. The number one thing we can do right now is scale the demand for electrolyzed hydrogen as quickly as we can. And if what that means is that the first major projects are massive Chilean or Australian multi-gigawatt electrolyzer farms that create the demand for the world's largest electrolyzer factories that don't exist today, but will need to exist in a couple of years. And then those electrolyzer factories can hit cost points that then enable green steel across the world. It just seems to me that that we could spend a lot of time figuring out how we're going to sort of paint by number, you know, and optimize everything. But in my experience, that's really never been it's never even been possible to choreograph, so why try? Speaking of choreographing, you know, the very beginning of the conversation with Baraj, he talks about what's changed now versus, you know, 10, 15 years ago. And one of the things he points to is the idea that industry is finally moving together, that we're seeing these clusters, groups of companies looking for solutions. It sounds not unlike from a manufacturing perspective, how we think about, you know, my mind goes immediately to how in Asia, we cluster, you know, the pallet factory and the glass factory around the solar silicon manufacturing factory. And it, it seems like there is this coincidence around the the users and the byproducts and, and folks that are in this ecosystem finally starting to work together. In your experience as a practitioner out trying to develop 
product and find partners. Do you see this clustering? I think we will see more of it, to be quite honest. You know, a lot of these products that are made offshore sort of demonstrate modern industrial models, right? I think we haven't seen quite as much clustering in the United States because, frankly, we've lost a lot of manufacturing, right? And so, but if you look at the United States auto industry, for instance, which is still a very robust onshore manufacturing supply chain, there's a lot of clustering there. You know, a lot of a lot of parts manufacturers near near the final point of assembly. So I, I think you will you will start seeing that I guess upstream clustering and the manufacture of the components that go into these things. You know, similarly on the downstream side in terms of chemical facilities or refineries or steel mills that that then need the energy inputs for for hydrogen, for instance. Yeah, I, I, I do believe you will start seeing these sort of clustering effects. In fact, I've actually argued that you might see you might actually see industries moving wholesale to the point of the low energy sources. Oh, yeah. That you may well see, you know, the middle of the country, Texas, Southwest, other places with very competitive energy costs due to their renewables becoming the site of much larger industrial processes, industrial, you know, manufacturing facilities. So I think this notion that Barrage had brought up around, you know, that industries are now moving together is an interesting one. I'll say that my interpretation of it, even beyond clustering, was was actually I kind of had this this sort of detente view of 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 kind of renewable companies and oil and gas companies moving together. Mm. And you are seeing you're seeing more acquisitions yeah. by oil and gas companies of renewables companies. You're seeing you know involvement in clean energy markets. You know every major oil company now probably has I think what they're calling a new energies group or something along those lines and an innovation arm and a venture capital arm. Totally. So it's yeah. you know it's it's an interesting development, and I agree that that it's going to take again the frenemies approach to get us where we're going. Well, it actually makes me think what you're saying there and reflecting on his talk, his conversation around risk diversification. When I heard him talk about, you know, Shell doing 50 billion a year in cash flow, buying a one uh, a battery company for a billion uh, or maybe Total bought a, bought a battery company for a billion. And he categorizes as risk diversification. You know, the majors are spending by his account 10 to 15 percent of CapEx on carbon solutions. It harks back to what I talked a bit with Jason good hand about this notion of are we actually moving in concert with the energy majors or as as Paul Martin would perhaps suggest we are their useful idiots what do you think about that well I mean you know as one of the useful idiots um, I'm I guess just aspiring to be as useful as I can be um, <laughs> no I I I'd sort of turn that on its head and say I'm not sure who the useful idiot is right I mean if you really look at it, you know, I think the oil and gas folks are just as lost in our part of the, in our neck of the woods as we mm. are in theirs, right? So I think this notion of the clean energy folks being the useful idiots of the, of the oil and gas business, particularly in our pursuit of clean hydrogen, is sort of harkens back to this us versus them, like understanding of the world that is, mm -hmm. I think, understandable for people who most of their experience was in the sort of who killed the electric car, oil and gas companies dabbling with solar only to just kind of kill it or shut it down. The, you know, the BP and Arco solar facilities down in Camarillo, right? So those just sort of cycled through the hands of oil and gas companies who wanted to prove they were innovative. 
things of that nature, I think it's very easy to believe that these companies have some sort of like great them at the top that has this malicious intent. But I think, you know, they are probably not as well organized <laughs> in that maliciousness as most people actually assume they are. Um, their interactions with government are quite organized. But I think in mm -hmm. terms of in terms of a lot of their other operations, I think they're just like you and me. You know, they're trying to get it right, trying to not lose money, trying to not lose their business. I think we should try very hard to put down some of the preconceived notions of the past because we're going to have to do it. There's just no way, I think, as Barrage sort of points out, that we can get this done yeah. by replacing all the oil majors. Yeah, it doesn't feel like they're going to do it alone, uh, and we certainly can't do it without them is perhaps one of the takeaways that, that I'm gathering in these conversations. You know, he points out that the big energy majors are really – gigantic engineering firms. They're a key part of kind of how we scale the technology and take it from, you know, the, the megawatt to the gigawatt scale, perhaps. Uh, he said something that I wanted your reflection on because it kind of leads into what does an energy major look like in the 20, uh, in the next 10 to 20 years, 30 years. He said they, they stay alive with what keeps them alive and sustain that as they transition over. Yeah, I mean... I'm sort of trying to process that one. They stay alive with what keeps them alive. Yeah. So it's a question How are you about, reading that? Well, it's a question about where they're putting their investment and their 85% of their CapEx is going into their core business, right? Mm -hmm. 10 to 15 mm -hmm. is going into climate solutions. In a sense, we look at, you know, a billion dollars spent by Total for a battery company as like, whoa, that's a lot, but it's actually less than 10% of their overall CapEx um, for carbon solutions. So maybe they're not doing enough, but really- he was saying effectively, they're going to keep spending money on the assets where they have the sunk cost as long as they can, because this is, that's the business they know. And it is what helps them actually sustain the profitability to invest in the, the energy transition. We'll never see this like about face where they just turn and say, all right, now it's clean energy. And we see that with BP and light source, right? A lot of folks Say, say that BP is speaking out of both sides of their mouth, but it actually is exactly indicative of what Barrage is saying here. On one day, they do a press release of 10 gigawatts, and on the next day, they do a press release about some fossil investment they're making. Yeah, I think, you know, I've used the phrase annuitizing the death of fossil fuels. And, <laughs> you know, I was talking to an investor the other day who's a private equity investor that's made quite a lot of money in upstream oil and gas over the years, primarily in that that classic play of investing in, you know, fracking companies that just had, that were nascent and had acreage and then, you know, putting capital in to allow them to, to frack and drill the assets and build pr producing reserves and then flipping them in many cases to the majors, right? And that, that trade is really no longer there for, for a number of reasons. But I, I think what I was saying to him was that I think you're going to see kind of like the oil and gas industry fracture a little bit. I, I, I don't think you're going to see a lot of the majors really able to bring their shareholders and others along on brand new CapEx investments in exploration and new reserves. This is kind of what I mean by annuitizing the death of the fossil fuel industry is that I think you're going to see people continue to invest in, you know, sort of exploiting known reserves and continuing to, you know, flow oil and gas because the, the world needs it. We're not going to get off it overnight. And our hope, hope, you know, hopefully what we find is that the investors in oil and gas companies are more interested in owning going concern energy companies 
than they are in owning just a cash flow stream, right? And so mm. I think you're going to bifurcate between the types of companies that own oil and gas assets that want to just keep dividending and doing share buybacks and offering their investors an opportunity to annuitize the death of fossil fuels. Yeah. And the ones who are, you know, pitching a different business, which is, hey, you want to invest in the energy sector and we're going to change with it. And so we're not going to give you your money back. We're not going to dividend and share buyback. We're going to take that money and plow it into our transformation, right? And so I, I think you'll see a, a, a bifurcation of the industry into two different types of players. Mm. Now I really wish we could have Barrage here to give you a response because I feel like that would be a riveting conversation I, to hear. I'm response. honestly, I'm honestly glad that he's not here because <laughs> I, I think, I think he'd probably, you know, like tell me that I didn't know what I was talking about. So uh, <laughs> that, that's a, that's a layman's view, just to be clear. Yeah, well, it's a very informed layman's view from, as you as you stated before, from primary research. Well, final thoughts as we wrap up this episode with Barrage? Yeah, in terms of final thoughts, I think as I listened to the whole conversation with Barrage, who has a great deal of expertise in, you know, the, the current mature energy sector being oil and gas, has a, a huge amount of familiarity with, you know, the current oil majors, how they run their business how they're likely to transition their business. The thing that struck me is that in any transition, in any industry of the scale that we're going into, you'd be foolish to assume that every one of the dominant players survives. Mm -hmm. And you'd be foolish to assume that none of the, that no new players arise, mm -hmm. right? And so take a look at say the internet, right? The internet came along at a time when Microsoft already kind of owned the PC software space, right? right? And everybody said, well, are all these new internet companies gonna replace Microsoft? Applications in the cloud, very lightweight, thin client operating systems, all of that stuff, right? You, mm -hmm. Anybody who's a geek kind of remembers that. And at the end of the day, Microsoft is still here. They mm -hmm. thrive in the internet era, right? But just the same way, right. you know, companies that might otherwise have been in enterprise software or PC software, there are many of those that don't exist today, right? That, that, that have fallen by the wayside and have been replaced by cloud computing software and other things. So I think when you think about it, the world is now open to the wildcatter business model, right? That's the way I think about it, is that in, in transitions, the new energy and new, the, the kind of new technology side of a transition enables kind of a wildcatter, higher risk, more entrepreneurial, high growth business model. And you will always see some of those eventually consolidate into brand new majors. So I think the thing to watch out for if you're looking at where this is going and who will dominate the energy space in the decades to come is which of the super majors are going to the current majors are going to, to fall and not play this correctly. And which of the sort of wildcatters or amalgamations and probably, you know, mergers and acquisitions and, and consolidations of wildcatters are going to emerge as the new clean energy majors, because yeah. that's really what we'll have, what we'll be left with in the end is clean energy majors or clean energy super majors, or, you know, however you want to say it, will come to dominate the energy markets in almost exactly the same ways as they do today. Yeah. I think that if you had asked someone in the 90s whether AOL and Time Warner would be a company that never see it as a possibility, right? Or that Verizon would be uh, the company that is, or that Comcast would be bigger than all of them. And I'm excited to see 
what the evolution looks like. But to your point, if we had never had Netscape, we may have never had PayPal. If we'd never had PayPal, we'd never have Tesla, right? So this all, it all builds, <laughs> it, it all builds yeah. on each other, right? Yeah. And we have to be open to the reality that this is all in flux. And companies like Total spending a billion dollars on a battery company is the move in the right direction that we need. And I look forward to seeing how, how this unfolds. I will come back to one thing, though, as, as you go on the technology side, and that is that some things don't change. And this is one of my like hobby horse things. If you know me mm-hmm. well, you'll have heard I this a this lot of I ask this question all the time in the podcast. So I'm curious, what, never, what doesn't change? <laughs> there is very little new under the sun when it comes to business models, right? Mm-hmm. At the, and, and so everybody, particularly on the tech side, I, I hate it when people say business model innovation. Because yeah. at the end of the day, you know, there are customers, there are suppliers, there are financiers. And so I like to think of things and have done very well in business thinking of things with analogies and using yeah. existing analogies with an extrapolations, right? So yeah. if you really want to quote unquote innovate, most innovation is incremental extrapolation. And the, the folks who can extrapolate most effectively are the ones who can affect, you know, eventually kind of see the future and then act on it before other people see it. And so when you look at that, this model of a energy major moving into being a clean energy major, there are a lot of analogies, right? We're just moving to a point where upstream is wind and solar. It's extraction, right? A wellhead is now a turbine or a a module, right? Transportation is kind of the midstream, right? And some of that will stay the same with pipes Mm. and wires, and some of it might be different, right? Because we have different types of products. There's still elements of transformation of the product from the raw material, the the raw extracted material to higher value products, right? Refining, chemicals, all of those things that that a major energy player does. And then there's the retail business, right? And so when you think about how will energy companies play across that space in the future, you know, most of the majors tend to play upstream a little bit, but mainly on a consolidated basis, not necessarily doing their own dirty wildcatting work but mm-hmm. sucking up other smaller companies. They do a lot of value-added products and refining and, and, and other stuff in the downstream. But many of them don't actually play in kind of transportation for many reasons. And then most of them have some sort of retail brand or presence for either their value-added products or refined products or, you know. So how will the new clean energy majors shake out across the energy value chain? Those are the types of things that like, you know, give me a whiteboard and a free hour of my time. And I just love talking about. I hope you've enjoyed this episode. It's part of a five part series exploring the green hydrogen economy from the perspective of renewable development, technical expertise, financial analysis and commercial opportunity. I hope that you'll subscribe to the show on Spotify and check us out also over on the web at mysuncast.com forward slash hydrogen, where you can read more about each guest, find additional background information and references that we discussed in this episode. If you're totally unfamiliar with me, well, I've interviewed more than 400 founders, leaders, entrepreneurs, and entrepreneurs in the clean energy industry over the last six years through my Suncast podcast, all in an effort to help you figure out exactly where you fit in the clean energy transition. If you haven't yet, I'd really encourage you to go listen to Suncast. It's the most comprehensive podcast in existence documenting the rise of the solar and clean energy revolution 
from the voices of the leaders brave enough to stand on the front lines. This Green Hydrogen podcast is a production of Suncast Media, and Season 1 is brought to you by Intersect Power. Thank you for listening.